message number two, study guide number two, entitled, Watch Out! Signs of Christ's Return. Now, as you're finding your Bibles and opening to the book of Revelation, the very first chapter that we're going to begin, I want to briefly review what we learned last night. First of all, we demonstrated, I believe sufficiently from Scripture, that Scripture is reliable. That believing in God, believing in the message of His Word, that the Bible is not just a good book, but that it is in fact God's book, is not something you have to accept blindly. The Lord gives us evidence. And the greatest evidence of the Scripture's authenticity and reliability is prophecy itself. That the Lord God can line up things before they happen, and not just a day or week or month, but years, hundreds of years, even thousands of years in some cases, and say, now watch, and you will see that no other thing that claims to be God can do what only God can do. And so he demonstrates through prophecy that his word is reliable and trustworthy. So we go to Revelation chapter 1, and we find that very thing. Revelation chapter 1 says it's the revelation of what? Jesus Christ. In fact, it's not a revelation of what anything. It's a revelation of whom? Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must what? Shortly take place. So the servant here is John. God gave a message about Jesus Christ to John for him to write down about things which must shortly take place, things in the future. So if God got things about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the dividing of Rome correct, surely he can get the end of the story correct as well. Jesus says, I write these things not so that you'll be afraid, but so that you don't have to be afraid. I'm the one who holds the end in the beginning, and I'll share it with you to ease your fears and to draw you closer to me. Now, before we begin our study tonight, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us this this little space of time where we can come away, come to fellowship with each other, but more importantly, Lord, to study your word. Help us to understand it. Give the same Holy Spirit who inspired its writing to now inspire our understanding and our reading. Bless us to that end, Lord, as you've promised in your word, for we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Again, Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 1, the book of prophecy opens with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, and here's the reason why, for the time is what? Now, here's the question. The time of what? Jesus' return. Notice this is how prophecy opens. Skip down to verse 7. Behold, he, and that's with a capital H, this is a reference to Jesus Christ, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, you recall from last night in our study of the image, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then divided Rome. And it said during the time of those kings, 
the God of heaven will set up a kingdom cut out without human hands, right? This is a reference to the coming of Jesus. It was during the time of the divided Roman Empire, what we now see as divided Europe. During that time, the time in which we are living, we should expect to see Jesus coming again. Now notice, go to the other end of the book of Revelation. The very last page of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, the closing passages of the entire Bible. And you'll see that this coming of Jesus is the great anticipation of all Scripture. Revelation chapter 22, notice verse 7. Behold, I am coming, not just coming at all, but coming how? Quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Sounds like what we just read in the introduction, yes? He said, in the beginning, blessed is he who reads because the time is near. And at the end, he says, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this book. It's the bookend promise of the book of Revelation that Jesus is coming quickly. Now, he doesn't just leave it there. Now go down to verse 12. And behold, I am coming how? Quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Finally, as if that wasn't enough, we go down to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming, how? Quickly. And John says, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Go to your worksheet now for the fill in the blank. Clearly we have this answer. The last repeated promise of Revelation is that Jesus is coming soon or quickly. The last repeated promise of the Bible, and especially in this book of Revelation, is about the coming of Jesus. There's no doubt that the purpose of this book was written so that we would reveal Jesus and be prepared for his coming. Now, last night, again, we said outlined Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, and during that time, Jesus would come. Well, that's, that's a pretty big expanse of time. And we're living in the day and age when we anticipate Jesus coming, but he hasn't come yet. And so many people start to snuff out and try to investigate and try to figure out when Jesus will come again. Notice the lineage, the the lines that are used are written in Scripture there at the end of the book of Revelation. It doesn't say Jesus is coming on this day or this month or this year or this hour. It just simply says he's coming quickly, quickly, quickly. But it doesn't say exactly when. So a lot of people try to calculate when is Jesus coming. But this is not what Jesus himself told us to do. Go back to the book of Matthew when Jesus, when he was here on earth, explained things about his own return. When Jesus was here at the first coming, he was constantly looking, pressing people to look to his second coming, but he never said to calculate the timing of the second coming. In fact, he explicitly said otherwise. Matthew chapter 24, let's go down to verse 42. He says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now this is the Lord himself telling us about his own return. And he says to watch because you don't know when. You can imagine in your mind, by the way, if you had a specific date or time, you wouldn't necessarily have to watch for anything. You would just set an alarm. It's like, oh, here we go. I can just listen. I can just pay. Somebody will flash a little button and, oh, it's getting close. But he says, no, 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 I'm not telling you what day. 
You can't put a reminder on your calendar. You have to watch because you don't know the day or the hour. In fact, he goes on to say, but know this. All right, so he says, don't look for a time, but know this. If the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So is he returning? Yes. And will that be a literal time? When he comes, it will be some hour. We just don't know what that hour is. So he says, don't just try to calculate and figure out what the hour is. You should just be watching because you don't know when the exact time is. Let's go to 2 Peter. Turn to the right in your scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 3. Chapter 3, we'll go to verse 3. Speaking of the coming of the Lord. This is the Apostle Peter's take on this event. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of what? It's coming. So apparently at the last days, the days in which Christ has promised to come, there will be people who are scoffing. By the way, what's it mean to scoff? To make fun of, to taunt, to tease, to ridicule. There will be some people looking at those people who look anxiously to the coming of Christ, and they're going to look at them and say, why do you keep looking at this guy? He hasn't come yet. Where is this promise of his coming? In fact, this continues on. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The sun goes down, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, the sun comes up. He hasn't come back yet. Where's this coming? Now, apparently, that would be something that the Apostle Peter told us to watch out for is people making fun or ridiculing or scoffing the idea that Jesus is coming at all. And you can almost sympathize with the, from their ungodly perspective as to why. The Bible was written nearly 2,000 years ago, and the very last page said, I'm coming quickly. 2,000 years later, he hasn't come. Scoffers will pick up that, apparently, and say, where is the promise of his coming? Now, let's go to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's in the T section of the New Testament, which is very handy, by the way. All the books that begin with T are clumped together in a pile in the New Testament, and they're in alphabetical order. So 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, then 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then Titus. So if it starts with a T, you've got a large block to go to. Okay? 1st Thessalonians chapter 5. And verse 2. Well, we'll just start with verse 1. Here, he's writing to the church of Thessalonica, and he writes to them, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a what? A thief in the night. 
And notice the consistency. All the Bible writers are absolutely convinced that Jesus is coming back, but not one of them gives a clue as to when. In fact, they say it's not going to be when you expect. It goes on to say, for, verse 3, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But now watch as he continues. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Now, if you catch what he's saying, I'm not telling you the time, but everybody else at the same time when Jesus comes will be crying, peace and safety, everything's fine, we're moving toward a new, wonderful, utopian world. But when they least expect it, Jesus will come. He said, now, in contrast to them, you who are in the faith, you don't have to be taken unawares. Not that he's going to give a time to set your clock to, but he's going to give some signs to watch for. Let's continue here. Again, verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as, as others do. But let us, what's that word again? Watch and be sober. Well, that's fascinating. In Matthew, Jesus said, watch, therefore, because you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. Paul says, watch. And the question is begged, watch for what? If we're not watching for times, we are apparently supposed to be watching for signs. There are some indicators given in Scripture that give us a general concept of when the coming of Christ is closer and closer, even at the doors. He doesn't pay, here's a date to put on the calendar, but he does give us some signs to watch for. So let's go down to a little fill in the blank here. We are not watching for the time of Christ's return, but for the signs of Christ's return. So we head back to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Now, Matthew chapter 24 is a fascinating little piece of Scripture here. Jesus, the one who has come now the first time, is talking about his coming the second time, and he tells us what's to watch for. So if there's anyone who knows about Christ's coming, it would be Christ. That makes the logical sense, yes? Now, why is he even having this conversation at all? If you were to peel back, you would find Matthew chapter 23, and of course, this is towards the end of his earthly ministry. He sees his ministry coming to a close. His life is shortly to end. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, he comes into the temple for the very last time. And he makes a bold statement. In fact, you can just read it right there in your scriptures. Look at verse 37 of Matthew chapter 23. And you can hear the pathos in his voice. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I say to you, you shall see me no more. Now, he didn't just end there. He says, till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Next time you see me, Christ says, it's not going to be as just a humble servant. I'm going to be coming back as a king of kings and lord of lords. This was your opportunity to get to know me. I wanted to gather you together, but you didn't want it. So your house has left you desolate. Now, you have to understand from the Jewish mindset, the temple was everything. And Jesus has his disciples around him, and they don't understand what he's just said. How do we know that? Just keep reading. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to him, by the way, it doesn't say what they said, but you get the picture that they're like, are you sure the house is left desolate? Have you seen this building? And Christ turns to them and says, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, in their mind, Jesus has walked out of the temple and he says, the next time you see me will be at the coming of the Lord. And then Jesus says, you see this temple? Not one stone will be left upon another. In their minds, the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Jesus are the same event. Of course, we have the hindsight that history provides And we know that when Jesus died in 34 A.D., it wasn't only about 35 more years or even less than that when the destruction of Jerusalem happened in 70 A.D. But Jesus still hasn't come, and it's 2014 A.D. There's a huge expanse of time between these two events. But in the disciples' minds, the only thing that could ever destroy the temple was the coming of Jesus, which he seemed to have just referred to. And notice what they ask him. How do we know this is what they were thinking? Because they say so. Verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So in their minds, the only thing that could bring about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple was the end of the age, the second coming of Jesus. And they say, hey, notice they're doing it privately. Come here. Tell us, when will these things be? And what's the sign to watch for as it's getting close? Now, you can imagine from Jesus' perspective, what if he told his disciples, oh, I'll tell you right when it's going to happen. The destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen in 70 A.D. This is 34 A.D. So within the lifetime of many of you here, you will see that happen. However, my return's not going to happen for another 2,000 years after that. Another part of Scripture, Jesus said, many things I wish to share with you right now, but you cannot bear them. So what Jesus does here to answer their question is he gives an answer that applies both to the destruction of the temple and to his second coming. And watch what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 24, continuing on, Jesus says in verse 4, 
Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one does what? Deceives you. We're going to have a whole evening about deception. But of all the things that Jesus could say to watch out for with the second coming, close at hand, was deception. Now, notice what he says about this deception. Look at verse 5. For many will come, how? In my name. Saying, I am the Christ and will deceive how many? Many. He said, many are going to come deceiving many. And how are they going to have this influence to deceive so many people? Well, they're going to come in my name. They're going to come in a cloak of Christianity, saying, I am the Christ. Now, you can, by the way, read that, saying, I am the Christ, two different ways. There was no punctuation in the early manuscripts of Scripture, so they could be, Christ could be saying, they're going to be saying that they themselves are the Christ, or they're going to be coming, calling me the Christ, but they're going to use that platform of influence to deceive many people. He said, of all the things to watch out for, deception was the first thing that came out of his mouth. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name and will deceive many. We see this, by the way. People have done that very thing, claim to be Christ. They have deceived a good number of people, false spiritual leaders, false, uh, false Christs, false prophets, people bearing the name of Christ. And by the way, this is, we see far more of this, where people will come bearing the name or the credential of Christ, I am representing Jesus Christ. I'm coming in the name of the Lord. God has told me this and that. And they'll sweep many people into their deception. Christ says, watch out for that. We live in a world of absolute spiritual confusion. The farther and farther we get away from the time of Christ, the more and more theories about Christ and the more and more people coming in the name of Christ that you see, you see all kinds of doctrines that you can imagine are out there proliferating all the time, creating a just honestly a mess in people's minds. For every idea that's out there, there's five counterfeits out there, and no one knows what to think. There's a general atmosphere of religious confusion that's not getting clearer any day by day. Results seen in general religious confusion, even among Christians. Is it possible that people are following Christ in the name Christian, but they're getting different counsel about what Christianity even means. Absolutely. He said, many will come in my name and many will be deceived. By the way, you're going to have to come back on the night. How do you know when you're not being deceived? You've got to come back. But Christ says, watch out for that. Spiritual deception. By the way, turn to Matthew chapter 23. I mean, I'm sorry, still chapter 24, but verse 23. He repeats this caution. Therefore, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. By the way, we're going to have a whole other meeting about the manner that Christ is coming, but it's not going to be some sort of thing where you can miss it. But apparently some people become, no, 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 you could. He's going to be out in the deserts, or he's going to be in the inner rooms as a spirit. He's like, don't believe it. And then he repeats, verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will rise, and show great signs and wonders to do what? 
to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And he says, see, I have told you beforehand. Watch out for spiritual deception even in the name of Christianity. First thing Jesus warned of. Second thing, still in Matthew chapter 24, now go to verse 6. After he warns of deceptive spiritual powers in the name of Christianity, he goes on to say, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Wars and rumors of wars. There apparently will be political and military conflict more and more as the return of Christ gets closer and closer. In your notes there, we have this written down, but these are facts that you can find anywhere in the world. This is not hidden. These are truths that everyone's aware of. The 20th century was the bloodiest in history with 160 million war deaths. Think about that. In 100 years, 160 million people died from wars and conflicts throughout the world. The 21st century, you would think we would have learned from all that, continues with that same trajectory with more than half a million war deaths so far. And notice it doesn't just say there'll be a lot of war or there'll be many great wars. It said there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be a spirit of war. There'll be ideas of war pervading the planet. Have you ever noticed that it used to be, even in our lifetimes, you knew when we were at war? Like there were times when a nation would rise up They would declare war in another nation. One would wear a uniform of this color. One would wear a uniform of this color. One would come this way. One would come that way. They would stand off, and that's a war. How many of us even know if our country is at war right now? And if so, with whom? How many wars are we fighting? And we're always on the precipice of another one. Look over here, there's another one. Oh, no, over there, over there. There's a spirit of agitation. In fact, right now, you can look this up, but there are more armed conflicts right now than there ever have been in the history of the world. Nations are rising against nations. There's wars declared, and there's rumors of wars right on the edge of war always breaking out, whether it's national conflicts, political conflicts, racial, tribal things, but the whole planet is in agitation. And you would think, if we were truly evolving into a better people, that we would get our stuff ironed out by now. But as time goes on, we're getting more and more violent, political Military unrest, wars and rumors of wars. Let's continue in verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Well, let's break this down a little bit. By the way, let's go to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 21. Jesus Again, speaking of his second coming, mentions these same types of things. It says in verses 25 and 26 of Luke chapter 21, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear in the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Natural disasters, you see what we're talking about here. Romans, again, chapter 8. The Apostle Paul picks up on this. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with what? Birth pangs together until now. It's interesting that Christ talked about natural disasters and related it to birth pains. We're going to come back to that in a second. The Apostle Paul picks that up. He says the whole creation, and he uses this almost this human imagery of groaning and laboring with birth pangs together until now. So repeatedly we see in Scripture that there will be natural disasters, things on the earth and in the sea and in the sky, And Christ, specifically, back in Matthew chapter 24, listed out some of them. The first one he mentioned was famines. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7, he mentions famine. Would you would think with, by the way, all of our modern technology, that famine would be a thing of the past. But not so. Currently, one-sixth of the earth is experiencing a famine of some degree or another. Think about these statistics. 50 to 60,000 people every single day starve to death in the planet that we're inhabiting right now. You have decreasing agricultural lands. The world population is continuing to increase, becoming unsustainable. 780 million people lack access to clean water. Now, from our cozy position, we might think, oh, these signs aren't really happening. But if we got outside of our little safe bubble, we would see that the world is experiencing exactly what Christ said it would. That as the time gets closer for his coming, you'd see an increase in these types of things, famine being one of them. Let's turn over the page. Pestilences. What's another name for a pestilence? A disease or a sickness, an illness, an outbreak of some kind. Pestilences. I don't have to tell you that in recent years, we've got more creative diseases out there than ever before. It almost seems like the more we try to fight disease, disease tries to fight back. And we get more creative things. We hear about weird things coming here all over. It used to be you had cold and flus and chicken pox, and that was it, right? Now, of course, we have all kinds of epidemics. We think of in recent years the AIDS epidemic in many developing countries. You hear about SARS and bird flu and Ebola and West Nile, et cetera, et cetera. Also, we have this added benefit now. I speak sarcastically. We have resurgence and resilience of known diseases. Stuff that we thought we had beat is starting to come back. And by the way, what disease is the number one killer of people right here in the United States of America? Yeah, it's heart disease. And we have cancers and lung problems, and all kinds of lifestyle things, which we're going to come to later. But is it possible that we bring pestilence on ourselves? Sometimes we think of ourselves as merely victims, but what if we're the ones that are doing it to ourselves, and now we have diseases running rampant that weren't really around in previous times? But he said pestilence would increase, and lo and behold, it has. Earthquakes in various places. The number of known earthquakes and earthquake deaths has risen dramatically in the last 100 years. Again, by the way, all of these are not made up facts. You can go online, you can go to any reputable uh, encyclopedia, any, any source that you want, and you'll see that these statistics bear out true. Think of the examples in recent memory. December 26, 2004, over 300,000 died in one day in a tsunami triggered by an earthquake. January 12, 2010, 
another 300,000 people died in a single day, plus another 8,000 in disease aftermath. You remember that earthquake in Haiti. In various places. Now, you might think to yourself, wait a minute, disease has been around. War has been around. Natural disasters have been around. It's not like there was a time when we didn't have these things, and all of a sudden when Christ comes, boom, earthquakes were invented. <laughs> or disease finally broke out. You say, we've had these things for a long time. What's, why, how can these possibly be signs of the end? Well, remember what Paul said. He says these things are like birth pangs. Where did he get that language? Well, he got it from Jesus Christ himself. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. Notice verse 6 what he says. After he talks about wars and rumors of war, he says, see that you are not troubled. So we should be looking for these things, but these are not the scariest things. Some of you are like, you mean disease and earthquakes aren't the scariest things? There's scarier things coming? Well, wait for it. But notice he says, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So if you see a massive earthquake, you're like, Jesus must be coming right today. It's like, no. These are signs that his coming is getting closer, but the end is not yet. Wars and rumors of war. Jesus must come right now. No. These are signs that let us know we're getting closer, but the end is not yet. Notice what Jesus continues to say. Still in Matthew chapter 24, go to verse 32. Where Jesus himself says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. By the way, if Jesus ever tells you to learn something, what should you do? Learn it. Pretty simple. He says, now, learn this lesson from where? A fig tree. He's like, for example, the fig tree teaches us a lesson. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is what? Near. Now, we live in a state that has seasons. It's much easier to preach this message than, like, say, in Florida. Okay? But you know what happens when the season's over, the leaves fall off, and that cold air comes in, and that first snow comes, which around here is like the end of August, you know? <laughs> and then the first of August, it melts away, you know? But think the trees change, right? They look they lose their leaves and just little sticks and the colder it gets, the stiffer they get. And it's just kind of, they just, uh, you know? I know there's a deep theological term. The trees just kind of, uh, right? And they bed down and they deal with the winter. But when the springtime comes, what happens to those trees? Life starts to go back through them again, right? The sap starts to flow, which apparently that's the good time right after that, that, that uh, frost starts to hit. And these have to warmer days, the sap starts to flow. If you want to tap a maple tree, that's when you do it, right? The sap is running through. And what happens to those branches? They start to kind of limber up a little bit and get a little bit tender. Juices are flowing through them again. They start to put out leaves. But at that time when the branch is tender and it's starting to put out leaves, you don't say, oh, look, it is summer. No, but you know that summer is near. Jesus says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. When you start to see these things, it's not the end yet, but you know that it's getting near. Again, we go back to Matthew chapter 24, where he says in verse 32, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, 
when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Okay? So it's not the end of all things, but it's the beginning of the end of things. Does that make sense? These things will increase. And he gives us another analogy. Go back to verse 8, Matthew chapter 24, same chapter, where he listed off wars and rumors of wars, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in verse 7. Look what he says in verse 8. All these are the, what's that next word? Beginnings of what? Sorrows. Fascinating enough, the sorrow, the same Greek word that is translated into English there, sorrow, means contractions or birth pains. It's the sorrow that a woman has as she's getting closer to her due date. Now, I have the unique experience of being married. Well, I guess it's not unique. Pretty much everybody's married. But my wife and I have two children. She decided, and I was right with her all the way. It's, you know, if it was me, I would say, let's not have children at all because I'm afraid of the pain. And if we're going to do them, I want them to be completely unconscious for the whole experience and wake me up when they're, you know, 18. But she has a different outlook. She wanted to be alert and awake. She wanted to be a part of this process. And I said, good on you. Okay. And for both of these, she opted out of having any anesthesia. Okay? All natural. For the second one, we even said, well, if we're going to do that, it's really expensive to do at the hospital. Let's just do it at home. So we did that, too. Now, what's interesting is when you have these, like, preparing to have a baby books, (laughs) they tell you about how you know when that baby's about to go. Now, you can try to do your best. We think it's going to be about this date on the calendar, but sometimes babies have their own schedule. Sometimes they're a little early. Sometimes they're a little late. Sometimes they're right on time. But you don't set your calendar and say, well, this baby's going to be born right here. I'll get ready the moment. No, 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 no. You're watching for signs as it comes along. And, you know, you notice, first of all, some physical... I'll tell you that one of the most frustrating parts of a pregnancy, from my perspective, was the part when I can't even see that there's a baby in there. But she's feeling things that I can't see any evidence of. All of a sudden, she's tired all the time. And I'm like, from what? That doesn't go over well. (laughs) But then you start to see things like, oh, okay, now, now, we got a baby in there, that's good, all right. And then you can feel the baby kick, and, you can see, and it starts to grow in all kinds of stages. But all of those are just the beginnings, right? The real stuff is later on. And you know it starts to get real because you measure the amount of pain, and you measure the frequency of the pain. You measure two things, the intensity and the frequency of the birth pains, right? If you've ever gone through this process, the doctor or the midwife or whoever will tell you, you need to time them, and you need to see how severe they are. So the first ones will be like, ooh, and then it passes. Hmm. But at that point, you're like, we probably shouldn't take any trips. We need to stick close by. It's not going to be today, but it's going to get in soon, right? And then you start timing them. Ooh, this one comes again. You start timing them, and, and it goes from ooh to ooh <laughs> to, well, and uh, it gets really intense after that, right? But as those get closer together and more and more intense, you know that the moment is getting closer and closer. You still can't say what day or hour or moment it's going to happen, but you know we're not leaving the house, we're not leaving anything, we've got our bags packed, we're ready to go, because it could be any moment. Christ says, 
you don't know the time of my coming, but I've given you signs to watch for so that when it gets close, you don't have to be like those people who are oblivious to the signs crying, peace and safety, you'll know that it's at hand even at the door. Like the fig tree or like the birth pains of an expectant mother. These signs will increase in intensity and frequency. But let me show you something else that I believe is quite evident in our world today. Still in Matthew chapter 24, this is where Jesus himself explains what we saw in the book of Revelation, his soon coming. He says in verse 12, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will what? Go cold. Apparently, people's love, their normal affections for each other will start to change. There'll be a shift in people's regard for one another. Now, why do we bring this up? Well, because the Apostle Paul brings this out even more clearly. Go to 2 Timothy, if you would. Again, back in the T section of the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Here the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, talks about signs to watch for for the coming of Jesus. But he doesn't talk about famines and pestilences and earthquakes and wars. He talks about something a little closer to home. Look what he says in verse 1. But know this. By the way, if the Bible ever says to know this, what should we do? Know it. That in the last days perilous times will come. And again, from our human thinking, we're like, oh man, he, now he's talking about earthquakes. He's talking about war. That's, the... That's not what he's talking about. Watch what he says. For men will be lovers of what? Themselves. So apparently the love that will grow cold is not love for themselves, but love for others. But they're going to start loving themselves a lot, according to Paul here. For men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. By the way, tell me if we're starting to describe society in which we live. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Their love that they should have for God and for their fellow man turns cold and instead love for themselves grows burning hot. And out of that you have pride and you have love of wealth and money. You have unloving spirit towards others, unthankful, unholy, unforgiving. And it lists all these terrible things. And apparently there would be signs not just in the heavens, not just in the skies and the seas and the land and the plagues, but signs in the people themselves. The people will start to change as we get closer to the coming of Christ. And I believe we see that in an increasingly heartless and violent society. Look at how we entertain ourselves these days, these lovers of pleasures. What brings us the most pleasure from a worldly perspective? Godliness or ungodliness? Violent media have listed music, television, cinema, video games, etc., where we have crimes like murder, rape, kidnapping, animal cruelty. 
Human trafficking. I don't know if you've heard about this lately. Believe it or not, again, go home and look up every one of these sources if you want. There are more slaves in the world today than there ever have been in human history. And you think, no way, that's not possible. It's absolutely possible, and it is happening right now. In our world, this day and age, oh, that was hundreds of years. No, it wasn't, friends. Human trafficking is alive and well. Men turn on each other, children, women. Erosion of family values in this country and in other countries around the world. More marriages end in divorce than otherwise. You have an increasingly accepted homosexual agenda. I don't know if you've seen that around lately. Abortion, 40-plus million a year globally. That's 125,000 a day. Nearly one out of four U.S. pregnancies ends in abortion. And we live in a pleasure-driven society. Think of the things that we bring upon ourselves in the name of pleasure, alcoholism, drug abuse, obesity, etc. Media saturation, again, with the music and television, movies, internet, gambling, sports addictions, consumer debt. You ever notice that we just keep wanting, we have this voracious appetite, and we keep going further and further in debt, but we never seem to be satiated. We just love what we love, and we want more of it whether it's food or drink or whatever your poison is. Pornography, etc. Now we could end with like, so friends, watch for the increasing signs in the natural world of pestilences and disease and of course wars and earthquakes, but it's not going to be bad yet. Wait till the people turn bad and as you see, the people around you are very, very bad. And I could say, let's bow our heads for prayer. You're dismissed. That would be a terrible, terrible presentation. Because apparently, though the world physically and morally is literally going to hell in a handbasket, there will be a people who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. That in the midst of this almost universal degradation of humanity, God will have a people on the earth. Notice back in Matthew chapter 24. After Jesus himself lines out all these things to watch for as indicators of his soon return, he doesn't close with something negative. Watch what he says here. Again, we'll start with verse 11 here. For many will, false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be what? Saved. Apparently there will be some people who endure through all of this to the end. And then he closes, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then what? The end will come. The very last sign of Christ's coming is not an earthquake, it's not a war, and it's not even the degradation of humanity, immorality. What we're looking at is in the spite of all of that, God will have a people who will stand for him and be just and holy in his sight. That they will be a living witness to the rest of the world that God is still on the throne, he can still guide his people, and he can still keep you from falling. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world, and then the end will come. Second Peter 
echoes this call to faithfulness. Turning to the right, we're headed towards the book of Revelation as we close, but in 2 Peter chapter 3, look what we find. We'll start with verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his what? Promise. And he's speaking of the promise of the second coming. Now let's go back to that thought. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus promised to come back quickly. Scoffers would come saying, where's this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it was, and they're making fun of the people who believe. And Peter's answer to this is, the Lord is not slack, or some versions say slow concerning his promise. It may appear slow from your perspective, but it's not slow from God's timeline. Why? By the way, if someone was slow or late to something, you would only think a few things about that person. Let's say that you have a job that you're supposed to show up to, but every day you don't show up on time. You're late, you're late, you're late. The boss is going to think just one of a few things about you. Number one, you're lazy, right? Or you're forgetful. Like, oh, I just can't remember. Or you just don't care. You don't care if you're on time. You don't care if you're late. It's not a big deal to you. But friends, neither of these, none of these are the reason Christ hasn't returned. It's not because he's lazy. It's not because he's forgetful. It's like, oh yeah, I was supposed to go get my kids. And it's certainly not because he doesn't care. What's the reason that Bible gives us for Christ's apparent delay? Again in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. What's another word for long-suffering? Patient. Not willing that what? Any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But you would think, oh, he's just going to let it go on and on and on and on forever. But that look at the very next verse. But... The day of the Lord will come, how? As a thief in the night. We've seen this from Jesus. We've seen it from Paul. We've seen it from Peter. We've seen it in John. All of these gospel writers had that same idea. Jesus is coming back, and it will be like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that it in it will be burned up. Therefore, here's how you prepare for that. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, here's the question. What manner of persons ought you to be in what kind of conduct? Holy conduct and godliness. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. What kind of people are you going to be? Are you going to be the type of people that Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 who just love themselves and lovers of pleasures and lovers of money and unholy and ungodly? Or are you going to be the type of people who Christ talked about who will stand for the right though the heavens fall? When we go back to the book of Revelation, look at chapter 14. Chapter 14 book of Revelation, in 
imagery he uses to describe his second coming. Look what it says in verse 14 through 16. Revelation chapter 14, starting with verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having his head on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp what? Sickle. What is a sickle used for? Harvesting, right? Reaping grain. And in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is describing the second coming of Jesus. And notice it says, you can thrust in your sickle now and reap, for the harvest is ripe. The time is ripe because the harvest is ripe. You know that farmers, when they plant their crop, don't put a day on the calendar in the fall when they're going to harvest. Why would they not want to do that? Because they'd probably get it wrong, right? What happens if you set a date and they, things don't mature until two or three weeks later? You don't have a crop, right? Well, what happens if you set a date and they mature two weeks before? You miss the crop, right? You don't set a time, but you watch for the harvest being ripe. The last sign to look for is a harvest of God's people being ripe and the other people being ripe as well. The people have made their decision and it's evidenced in their lives. Watch this. Jesus says the same thing. Still in the book of Revelation, this time chapter 22. Notice the declaration that is made just before Jesus returns. Verse 11 of Revelation 22, the last page of the Bible. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. Apparently there's going to be two classes of people, the holy and the unholy, the righteous and the wicked. And Christ will come when that harvest is ripe. Thus we see the very next words. And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Friends, Jesus is coming soon. And there are signs that indicate that his coming is nearer than it ever has been before. But apparently we're not just simply to watch back, sit back and watch the signs go by. We are to be active participants in hastening the coming of God. Apparently there will be a clean demarcation between those who love the Lord and those who do not, those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. And the question is left to us, what kind of people ought you to be as you look forward to and hasten the coming of the day of God? Let me ask you a question. Raise your hands. Has tonight's presentation at least made sense? You don't even have to agree with it, but at least it was logical from A to B to C. Praise the Lord. Now let me ask you another question. How many of you want to be ready so that when Jesus comes, we'll be part of that harvest when he takes home? Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are patient with us. Thank you that you are not slack concerning your promise as some consider slackness but you're long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
Lord, we look around at the signs that you've given in your word, and we see exactly what you've said, increasing in intensity and frequency, natural disasters and wars and rumors of wars and pestilence, but we know that those are not the final signs. We know those are just the beginnings of sorrow. But in the last days, there will be upon the earth two clear groups of people, those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous, those who are holy and those who are unholy. Lord, you don't want any to be lost. And so, Lord, we want to be part of that group who is holy in your sight. Lord, bless us to that end. Help us to learn more about you. Help us to walk closer to you. Help us to be ready to see you when you do come soon and very soon. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.